Lord, I thank you so much for your awesome presence here tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you would anoint this word like never before, that you'll come speak through me. Lord, this word will go out as living seeds of truth sown right now in the good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, we ask you that your word will go out as light shining in every dark place, and it will dispel any deception, any lie of the evil one. And Lord, it will bring light and truth and revelation. Lord, I pray that you would anoint our eyes and our ears and give us eyes and ears of the Spirit to be able to see and to be able to hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking. That we're not just getting this on a surface level, but we're getting this by revelation. Lord, I pray that your word would be a mighty hammer that will tear down and literally knock down strongholds of the evil one. That it'll be a sword that cuts away what needs to go. A sword that pierces through. And Lord, let your word go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do as you promised that it would. We believe, Lord, we bind away the enemy that would try to be like birds that steal the seed, but it's not going to work. We bind that, we break his power, and we thank you, Lord, for watching over your word and making sure it will be what you desire it to be in Jesus' name. All right, I want to share just a couple things, and I'm going to pray with people tonight. God's really moving tonight with impartation. That's where the the move of the Spirit is, so I don't want to take too long in this word, but I'm going to deal with deception and mixture part 12, revival warnings, and this is the final in this series. Listen, when I began this series, the Holy Spirit put on my heart and showed me that there were certain people that were somewhat prone toward deception. And what this series did, and it's not just one person, there was you know quite a few, but what this series did was it helped to take like the sword of the Lord and drive it and begin to stir up, stir the pot and cause things to come up to the surface that need to be dealt with. And it did. It dealt with things. And and it helped to, to like gold refined in the fire, and those impurities came up to the top, skinned them off. And so I'm going to close out this series, and I'm going to deal with some things. But throughout this series, I confronted a lot of strongholds and a lot of things that are that's going on in the body of Christ where Satan is trying to bring a lot of deception. It seems like every every area of our fundamental truths of Christianity is being challenged. And, and it's not just being challenged by the world, it's being challenged by some Christians. And really, that's what this series was really about, was to, to kind of grab hold of maybe some people that, that would have, later on, would have gotten into some major deception and just kind of pull them in on this path where they're protected. And that's the Lord's heart, isn't it? He's the great shepherd. And he wants us to be on a path of safety and protection in his truth and in his presence. But we can't just have a move of the Spirit alone. We've got to have the Word of God setting up boundaries. Like how many guys have been bowling and just for the fun of it, you pull out those those bumpers on the side. What are those things called? Somebody help me out. Bumpers? All right. I know what I'm talking about. But anyway, you put them up on the side. And I used to do that just for fun. And I would throw the ball as hard as I could and try to see if I could zigzag it down there and still get a strike, you know. But that's the Word of God. The Word of God causes, if people will listen to the Word of God, it causes something to come on the right and the left 
that keeps you from falling into deception. Because you know, we all love the move of the Spirit of God, but if you don't have, if you're not established in sound doctrine and the Spirit of God starts moving, I'm going to tell you that history has shown that there is some crazy cults, crazy deception, weirdness that creeps in because they don't have the Word of God to put it in check and say, wait a second, this is not scriptural. This isn't right. And so I began this series really being strong on that, but I'm going to end it just a little bit different tonight and kind of round off this teaching, if you will. But let me start with this. If you want to carry an anointing, if you want to have a mantle, if you want to be in the glory of God and to be used of the Lord, you're going to have to get used to controversy. Did y'all get that? How many of you guys would say and be honest with yourself and say, you know, I've seen nominal Christianity and, I, and I've seen revival, I've seen Book of Acts Christianity, and I'm kind of ruined now. I, I've got to have God's presence. I've, just, I've got to have true biblical Christianity. I can't go back to old religion. The husk of religion does not satisfy. I've got to have something more. How many be honest and say that? All right, I'm, I'm the same way. That's part of the reason why I started in the first place, just meeting like I'm doing with people because I couldn't stand sitting through dead, dry church services week after week and it's just dry and boring. And it, I wanted to see going out on the streets and seeing souls saved. I wanted to, to see prayer meetings for a move of God. I wanted to see the Holy Spirit come in power and change lives. I wanted to hear testimonies like we're hearing here. Pastor Scott, God healed me of this. God delivered me of this. I'm different. I feel different. There's a change in my life. And you're not seeing that where, where God's not moving. And, and, I, and I had to have it. But let me tell you, if you want that, that's wonderful. We all do. But I promise you, the Bible says this in Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. Think about that. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers used to treat the false prophets. So Jesus is saying you're going to have to get used to controversy. Some of you that are real sensitive and you don't like being made fun of, you don't like having a stigma, you know, you're just going to either have to get used to it or you may find yourself walking away one day just shaking your head saying, I can't handle the pressure. But you're going to have to, if you really want to move of God, You've got to get ready for controversy. And listen to me, you've got to be okay with being misunderstood. How many times have I said something and it was totally misunderstood? You're going to have to get used to being lied about and not being able to defend yourself, that people are lying about you out there and you just have to just let it go and just not care. Because you can't run around defending yourself and finding every little group of people that's sitting there running you down and going there, you know, waving your Bible in the air. Wait a second. I'm here to defend myself. You can't do that. I mean, it's just going to make everything worse. You're going to have to get comfortable with the fact that there's going to be people out there that are going to be saying things that just simply are not true, but you just don't care. What have I said all along? When we die, we're only going to stand in front of Jesus by ourselves and him and you're going to give an account of your life. The critics are not going to be there. Don't live for them, live for him. 
The people that pat you on the back aren't going to be there, and the people that hate your guts are not going to be there. It's only going to matter what Jesus says. So live every day of your life based on what is Jesus going to say about me in the end. And live with an eternal mindset. What's going to matter in eternity? And another thing, you're going to have to get used to like a stigma. A stigma is like a stamp, so to speak, on somebody. Like, for example... If I say the name Rodney Har Brown, what comes to your mind? The joy. That's the first thing that people think of. But did you know, if you know the story of Rodney, when he came from Africa, a mighty anointing. God, I don't know if you know his testimony, but he was so desperate as a teenager. He was just crying out to God in a meeting, and the Holy Spirit struck him like a bolt of lightning. He went out. And from that moment on, God came upon him for three solid days. I believe it was three days, just in an awesome way. And the Spirit of God empowered him. But when he came to America, he came with like $300 in a family of five or something like that. And just was living by faith, preaching. But the last thing on his mind was joy. The last thing on his mind was everybody laughing. That was the last thing. But he was crying out for revival. Well, he was in upstate New York preaching. And the Spirit of God started moving in, and all of a sudden, all these people started laughing. And he's sitting there trying to preach, and he's thinking, this is peculiar. I've never seen this before. But yet, at the same time, he's thinking, well, the Holy Spirit is... And so they left there, and they went to another place, and it happened again. Then he went to another place, and it happened again. And he looks at his wife and says, dear God, it's following us, you know? What's going on? And he even told the Lord, he said, Lord, people, people don't like this. They're, they're persecuting me. Why are you doing this? And if I remember correctly, the way he described it was, he felt like the Lord say, well, if you don't want it, I can do it somewhere else or through somebody. And he, he really said, Lord, just do what you want to do. But you know, he's been stigmatized by that. Think about it. And there's people that probably, unfortunately, we bless and love him, but probably will never receive from his ministry because they think he's weird. But it was God that came. It was God that did that. When Jesus walked walked in the earth and moved in power, he was stigmatized too. People put labels on him. They said, well, he's a drunkard. He's, he's, he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. And they stigmatized him that way. It was like a stigma. And there was people that would not receive from his ministry because he was stigmatized, you know. And you just got to get used to the fact that if you're a threat to the devil, that Satan is going to try to stigmatize you in one way or another. They, You know, they did it to Toronto. They did it to Brownsville. They've done it every move of God. They, And so just be ready for that. And, uh, you know, it, it breaks my heart and grieves me about some of the stuff, like, for example, all that, that Benny Hens had to go through, you know, being anointed. I mean, he's really went through it at being stigmatized. But you know, he's a mighty man of God, and I love him. I'm so thankful. I, w- I don't know that I would be where I'm at today if it wasn't for Benny and him praying over me over the years and, and, and also his books. I've learned so much from his books. How many of you guys have read a book by Brother Benny? Aren't they excellent? The excellent author and just mighty anointing on his life. But, but he's been stigmatized because of what? The anointing. If you want the anointing, there's a price. I understand that Jesus paid for our sin, healing, deliverance, and all that on the cross. But there's certain things with God that there's a price to pay. There's something that goes along with it. And one of them is really walking in a mighty anointing. There is a price to pay. 
when I, you know, I'm coming on the heels of my testimony, but I wish with all my heart I had had somebody that, that could have talked to me about these things and got me ready because I did not know what I was getting into. The Lord anointed me, and then all hell broke loose, and I didn't know what was going on. I really didn't know. Why are all these people hating me? Why are they saying stuff about me that's not true? Why is, if I make a mistake, why is it blown into, what's going on? I mean, I didn't understand just the swirl, of it, but it was it was spiritual warfare coming against an anointing. And, and So anyway, I'm just telling you to be ready for these things. And also be ready for religious opposition and persecution. Now listen to this, and then I'm going to get into where I'm going with the sermon, but this is really neat. In First Chronicles 20, verse 4, David saw victory after victory after victory. Listen to this. Now it came about after this that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines. Then Sibachai, the Hushite, killed Sipai, one of the descendants of the giants, and they were subdued. Now you guys are more spiritual, and I can talk to you this way, but you do realize they were fighting these Nephilim. I mean, this is what they're talking about when they're talking about these giants. Think about this for a second. Did you know that Goliath, it's estimated that he was around the height of a basketball goal. How many of you guys have ever been around somebody that's maybe seven foot tall? I have, and they seem like a giant. Goliath was about 10 feet, so you're looking at a basketball goal. We, we think it's amazing when somebody can jump and, you know, spin or whatever and dunk the ball. That's Goliath's head. Are you getting an idea of where I'm going with this? And it wasn't like they were tall like that and then a little bitty bean pole. I mean, they filled out. And these guys, you know, nowadays we think automatically, well, you just shoot them. But see, you got to understand, all they had was hand-to-hand combat back. It's not like you roll a grenade into the camp of the giants. (laughs) You had to fight these guys head on. And I want you to get a picture of this because David killed his giant as a young man. David most likely was a teenager. And David wasn't out there, you know, like lifting weights and stuff. I mean, he was just a normal teenager. And he took down a giant that was 10 feet tall. Now you understand a little bit why everybody was singing his praises, you know, singing songs about the guy. And David killed his giant, but now it's time for his mighty men to kill their giants. If you want to be a giant killer, you've got to hang out with giant killers. It rubs off. And David's mighty men began to kill these giants. In verse 5 it says, again, there was war with the Philistines and Athanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Hittite. So Goliath had giant brothers. I mean, what in the world's going on? The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Again, there was war in Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had 24 fingers and toes, six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. He was a descendant of the giants. You know these guys were ugly. Let's just be real. Anyway, when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. (coughs) These were descendants from the giants in Gath. They fell by the hand of David and his servants. Now listen to this. I want you to see this. 
there was war and then a giant went down there was war and a now the, these giants are like satan's champions so picture this with me i'm gonna say it and i want you to get this there was war one of satan's champions was brought down there was war again satan's champion fell again war again satan's champion fell then it says then satan stood up And he moved on David to number Israel, but it says Satan stood up. He was it ticked him off. He realized I'm I'm trying to I'm sending my giants, I'm sending the Philistines, and they've got these these Nephilim that are that are in front. These are huge men, and I'm sending them in, and Israel keeps killing my champions. That's what you know Satan was saying. And finally, after three times of watching that, Satan had enough and he stood up in anger. And he realized that a front on battle head to head with Israel was not going to work. He realized that David had something on him from the Lord and his men had something on them that they were just going to win. If Satan's whatever champion Satan tried to send in there, these guys were going to kill him. And so Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. It was against the law to do this. It was something God had forbidden and Satan enticed David played on his pride and his ego to number, take a census of Israel, which was forbidden. They were, he was not supposed to do that. And when David did that, then it brought God's judgment. So what I'm saying is, is that Satan knew a front-on, head-to-head combat was not going to work. And so Satan had to try a new strategy. And so he had to entice David to do something that was wrong, and therefore it opened him up to God's judgment. This was the same exact tactic that Satan used with Balaam. Balaam came as a false prophet and Balak was the king of the Moabites. And if you read about Balak, he was, he was very much into um, the occult and to the degree that in 2 Kings chapter 3, Balak, Israel was coming against him and he became so afraid that he took his eldest son and human sacrificed him on the wall and that's in the bible humans sacrificed him to his demon god and it says that great wrath broke out against israel and they went home that's in your bible second kings chapter three this is balak these, these these moabite kings these were evil men it may not have been actually balak but it was these kings of moab that were evil men but balak tried to curse israel and he could not put a curse on them. and so he hires balaam to come in and do it now, the tents of Jacob were there, and they could not curse them. They tried. They tried their witchcraft. They tried to release these forces of darkness against Israel, and it did not prevail. So what did Balaam do? Balaam told Balak, hey, listen, if you will take the really pretty young Moabite women and send them into the camp to entice the young men, and they will marry the Moabite women, that it will bring God's judgment down on them. I know that as far as a front-on attack, you're not able to prevail against Israel. But if you will come in a back door and seduce them like that, it will open them up for God's judgment. And that's exactly what they did. And God's judgment fell. And many of them died. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Satan knows that a lot of times just a front-on attack is not going to prevail against many of God's people. 
because they've learned how to wage war. They've learned how to, how to break through those things. So he tries to find back doors. He tries to find ways into the camp where, where somebody's seduced into something, and then it creates a major problem, a major door. But let me tell you, if you want to move of God, you've got to be ready for these things. You've got to, you've got to know yourself. One of the things that really impressed me a lot, I saw Richard Crisco preach at Heartland. Richard Crisco was the youth pastor at Brownsville during the revival. When he was at Heartland preaching, there wasn't a whole lot of us there. I was just visiting, but it was on a Wednesday night. And as he was preaching, this is what he said. He said that I know myself and I know my personal weaknesses. And he said in regards to the Brownsville Revival, he said, I had a whole bunch of um, articles, newspaper clippings, magazine clippings, um, plaques, and different things that were just memorabilia from the revival. And he said, I know my weakness. And he said, I know that that stuff tends to try to get me into pride when I think about it, like accolades. And so you know what he did? He took all of his memorabilia and threw it away. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't do that, honestly. But he said, I know my weakness, and I cannot do that. He gathered it all up, and he threw it all in the garbage. Now, somebody else can handle the memorabilia, but he was making a point. You have to know your weaknesses. And he was saying, my weakness may not be yours, and yours may not be mine, but I know my areas that I have weaknesses. And he said, I went the extra length to make sure that it wouldn't affect me. Isn't that what Jesus said when he said, if your eye offend you, pluck it out, or your hand offend you, cut it off? In other words, Jesus was saying, go to extreme measures to make sure that whatever it is that's a weakness is dealt with. One person may have a weakness with pride. Another person may have a weakness with fear. Another person may have a weakness toward being real controlling. Another person have a weakness toward lust. Another person have a weakness toward being easily offended. You know, another person, just something else. But all of us are human, and none of us are perfect, and we know our own selves. The only person that knows us better than us is Jesus. But you know things about yourself that nobody else in this room knows. And so what I'm trying to say to you is, is that as revival keeps going forward and giants are falling, a giant is falling, a giant is falling, ground's being taken, people are being saved, there comes a point in time where Satan stands up and says, I've had it. And he's going to try to find a back door. He's going to try to find, and he tries to play on people's weaknesses. It doesn't make sense. If I was having to fight for my life, I was in a back alley somewhere, and some guy jumped me, and he's trying to kill me, and I realize that he's got a major wound in his leg, it doesn't make sense that I'm going to keep fighting him in his strength areas. What am I going to do? I'm going to start working on the leg. I'm going to kick that leg until he's down. And, I mean, that's how Satan is. He, he'll find somebody's soft area, their area that is not sanctified, their area that's not strong in Christ, that, that place. And he'll try. He, he realizes that front-on attack isn't working, so he says, I'm going to go a back door now and try to play on this. And if I can get them into sin, then it will open them up not only for God's judgment, but it will open them up for the enemy now to really 
defeat them. Remember the story of Joshua. I mean, you understand, he took these men, and Joshua now was an older man. If you think about it, he had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but him and Caleb were supernaturally, their youth renewed, you know. But he was an old man. He was like probably, what, you know, 60 or something. And he goes in there, and um, he's got all these young guys with him. And he says, they look at this huge wall, and they realize that Jericho was not going to be easy to take. Once again, you can't, you know, launch your RPG into the wall. I mean, it was hand-to-hand combat. It was climb the wall, but they're dropping huge rocks and, you know, would kill you if you tried that. And how do we get through this thing? And they had to pray and seek God, and God gave them supernatural victory. We know the story about Jericho, but after Jericho, what happened? Satan was angry that the walls came down. He was angry that they took that area. And so something enticed Achan to take gold and things from the city and hide them in his tent. And God has specifically told Joshua, tell the people, don't take anything from Jericho. Let it all be destroyed and burned. Why? Because there were ten major cities and this was the tithe. Okay, this was the first fruits. They were supposed to give it all to God. But Achan snuck some of it, went back to his tent, probably dug a little hole or whatever, buried it, thought nobody will know. Well, they go to fight the next battle in Ai, and this was a little city that should have been easy to defeat, but yet Ai whipped Israel after they had a huge victory at Jericho, a city that they should have never taken in the first place. It was a supernatural victory. How many times have you seen a football team beat somebody that they were the major underdog. And then they get cocky. The next week, they're like, we are unbeatable. Look at us, you know. And they're eating pizza. They're joking around. They, they, they don't want to practice. They don't want to go through the plays. And they play a team that is far less talented that beats them. And it's humiliating. Well, Israel, they got lax. And next thing you know, they were defeated by AI. But the problem was they had to find out that there was sin in the camp. Satan had snuck in a back door. He had seduced somebody into sin, and now it affected the nation. So what I'm trying to say is Satan is not going to sit back idle as you plunder his kingdom. Do you really think that as you keep winning souls and keep seeing a move of God and keep seeing uh, demonic spirits fleeing and and healings and awesome things happen, do you really think that Satan is just going to sit back and, and laugh about it and just let it go? No, he's eventually going to have enough and he's going to want to try to find a way in to attack. So there's strong opposition and attack against exposing. Listen, there's a couple things that Satan will fight. He will fight revival tooth and nail. He will fight soul winning tooth and nail. He will fight intercessory prayer tooth and nail because he knows that intercessory prayer is a major threat. And he will will attack ministries that expose him that that talk um in a way that exposes his kingdom and exposes his works like for example my wife's testimony things like that things that expose him and and teach people how to to get the victory over the devil Uh, there's a major attack against these things satan's greatest threat is a group of people that can actually stay in unity that will come together in corporate prayer and intercession. Did you know that? Because he knows 
that if there's a group of Christians that are in unity and they will come together and they will pray and they will fast and they will intercede, he knows, he knows, believe me, he knows, God's going to come down. And when God comes down, Satan knows that there is nothing he's going to be able to do about it because God's going to do whatever he wants to do and slap the devil around for a while and the devil's not going to be able to do nothing about it. So he knows to stop this thing from the beginning, he's going to have to disunify a group so that they cannot come together in prayer. We've got to have the right focus of, of um, keeping our eyes and our focus on Jesus, but being aware of what the enemy is doing. I know right now there's been kind of a trend with a certain group that they're trying to get people just to ignore, I guess. It's the way it seems to just totally ignore the devil and what he's doing. Let me tell you, that's not balanced. What is balanced is, is you keep your focus on Jesus and what he's doing. That's your focus. But you're still aware of what's going on. Because if you're ignorant of the devil's devices, that is very foolish. True prophets will know what God's up to, but they'll also be told by the Lord what the enemy's up to so that they can expose it and it can be defeated. Because, see, we're supposed to discern it so that through our prayer and intercession, it will dismantle that thing. In other words, Satan is trying to attack, and then God tells us, and so we begin to pray and his attack is nullified how's that going to happen if you're just ignoring it all the time it's not balance there's not wisdom in that you focus on jesus that's your focus but you're aware you remember the story of elisha elisha the the enemy of that time kept being ambushed by israel and the king finally lost his temper and had all the, you know some of his leaders come in and say could somebody tell me which one of you is a spy And one of them spoke up and said, none of us, king, there's a prophet in Israel that tells the king of Israel the very things you whisper in your bedchamber. And he said, we've got to go kill that prophet. So they went over to Elisha's house. But what they didn't understand was, was Elisha was not alone. This is the famous story where Elisha and Gehazi were there, but Elisha prayed for Gehazi's eyes. And his eyes opened and he saw chariots of fire all around their property. And Elisha prayed and they were blinded and and dumbfounded. And Elisha took the king's horse (laughs) and walked the whole army right into the middle of Israel's camp. And and Israel surrounded them. And then that stupor came off of them. Listen, man, when God's for you, who's going to be against you? The king tried to come in and and kill the prophet. And the only people there was the prophet and his servant except for the thousands and thousands and thousands of fiery chariots that they just didn't see when they showed up. But keep your focus on the Lord. See, Elisha knew he was focused on the Lord, but he knew what the enemy was up to. And God defended him and fought for him. We have to have faith to possess the promises of God. We've got to have faith. Our faith must increase. This is a time when I believe There is a fullness of time. At least in my heart, I feel it. I feel this travailing in my spirit. I feel it very strong, more than I have. I feel like there's something that's up. There's something up. And I don't believe it just has to do with River of Life. I believe that these prophecies 
the, the prophecy about Azusa Street that a hundred years later there would be a, another move greater, it's burning in me. I really believe that we're at a time we're going to start seeing these prophecies come to pass and, and the prophecies about a great awakening and America blazing the fires. Listen, there's, there's been times in the past where America was not doing good morally. And then revival came. I mean, do you really think in Wales everybody was doing great morally before revival? No, Wales was horrible. Horribly immoral. But when revival came, the brothels shut down, the bars shut down. The, you know the stories, the ponies that they had no longer recognized the cuss words because they quit cussing, so they had to replace. Everything changed. They even, the, you know, the Super Bowl of their day was in recorded history that it was shut down because of revival, and it says that. <laughs> the soccer, whatever it was, shut down due to revival. The whole nation. Can you imagine there being such a sovereign move of God in America that next year they're like Super Bowl such and such is shut down due to revival? That's what happened in Wales. If God did it before, he can do it again. The only thing hindering God is Christians not believing and not praying. That's the only thing. If we pray and we believe and we come together with God, all things are possible. He can do it. But we've got to be ready to possess the promises. So listen, don't let the devil get in your head and start making you feel like a failure, making you depressed, making you feel like all this negative stuff. Listen, God knows that we're human. He knows that we're not perfect, but he's still for us. And he's still going to give us the things he said he's going to do. Okay, So don't get all negative. Don't let the devil tear you up in your mind. Just keep going after God. You know that story I told when I was at that church? And that guy called me out and prayed over me about a mantle. Remember that story? I felt like seven times. You know what his sermon was? And I never forgot it because I felt, in this specific instance, I felt that the title of his sermon was a prophetic thing for me. I've always felt that all these years. His sermon was, let's pull down every stronghold and let's press into the last day anointing. That was his sermon. And that's what I'm telling you. Let's pull down every stronghold Let's press into the last day anointing and go after God, the God of the supernatural. So here's how I want to round this thing out. I started this series by warning people, do not just blindly accept everything that's supernatural. Are y'all hearing me? Please, please tell me that this is deep down in you now. (laughs) Please tell me by now that all of us have grabbed hold of this truth tight and we've got it. It is scriptural that when something's going on, that we stop for a moment and we test it. That's scriptural. It's in a good spirit. It's in love. You love everybody. You're not mad at nobody. You're just making sure that before you embrace this thing, that you're not embracing something demonic. You want to make sure that it's God. And once it is God, go for it. Okay? So that's how I started this thing, that we really be careful But now I kind of want to round this thing out a little bit and share a few things before I move on. Did you know, though, the Bible's there to protect us, but the the Scriptures are not there, though, to inhibit us or put us into bondage. So I started this this sermon series one way. I'm kind of going to round it out now. Y'all ready? Did you know that when Jesus came, that there had been prophets and people before him that had done some of the things that he did. For example, that Elisha and Elijah and people like that, 
they had prayed for people that were sick, that were healed. They had remember they had they had raised the dead. Now this was a real threat when Jesus raised the dead because now the Pharisees knew that everybody in Israel knows the stories of Elijah and Elisha raising the dead, so they're going to think Jesus is a great prophet. So they were very concerned about that. But did you know also that there were certain things that Jesus did that were not done by any predecessor and were not done in the scriptures anywhere? For example, he spit on the ground, made mud, and put it on somebody's eyes, and nobody ever did that before. Did you know that? So people that have the mentality in the scriptures that if there is a scripture that specifically says this, then we're allowed to for it to happen. But if it's not there, then we can't. Well, let me go along that line of thinking and say this. Well, what about the fact that they didn't have church pews? What about the fact that, that they never wrote anything down and gave out gospel pamphlets or tracts? They never did that in the Bible. There's no scripture that says it's okay. So do we say to ourselves, well, if it's not in the Bible, we just can't do it. That would be silly. Well, we can't give out gospel tracts anymore because they didn't do it. And, and they could have wrote something down. It would just been a little bit more effort, you know, before the Gutenberg press. <laughs> but, you know, they still could have done it if they wanted to. So what I'm saying is, is that you can't, you can't say, well, there's not a specific scripture that says this, so therefore you have to have discernment. And this is where a true discernment comes in, that it's not going against the scriptures. Like, for example, the Marian apparitions are preaching another gospel. I mean, we all know that there's no way that's God, man. I mean, the thing, this being, this entity is coming down and preaching a counterfeit gospel. So we know that according to the word of God, Paul said, if anybody's preaching another gospel, let them be accursed, even if it's an angel from heaven. So we know that applies and we have to chunk it out so i'm just saying don't be to a place though to where you're overly cautious and critical that you won't accept something that's maybe a little different for example um i don't know of any place in the new testament where people fell down laughing but we know it's god because we've seen it and but i do see places where people have fallen down so do you see where I'm going with this? Somebody that's real religious and real legalistic in their mind will say, well, wait a second. You know, and they don't understand that the scriptures are not there to put people in bondage. They're there just to protect us. And you know that joy is from the Lord. And so you see where I'm going with this? So a, a couple things. For example, I believe personally that, that the places where God has been sending like gold teeth, did you know that's going on in Argentina where, where people leave the meeting, they go home and they're brushing their teeth, and all of a sudden where they had had some dental problems, it's gold, gold fillings. Now tell me that's not cool. But that's, that's been going on. I believe that's of God. And not only that, but what about things like gold dust? You know, I've seen things like that or some of the things that's going on. I personally believe it's of God. Now, could there be a counterfeit here and there? Probably. Satan counterfeits everything. But I believe that there's a real, you know. And so, but my point is, and what I said earlier on in the series is this, though. Don't have this lust for the paranormal where you're chasing after this stuff. Just simply love Jesus. And if some of these things happen, give him glory. But don't, 
get caught up in this stuff where that it's all about that and make it an idol or go chasing after it. That's how deception happens. Also, creative miracles. There's been some amazing creative miracles, visions and dreams that people have that are from the Lord. There's a lot of preachers out there that if somebody came to them and told them, said, I had a dream and I feel the Lord spoke to me, they would just blow you off as being a nut. There's a lot of preachers like that. Okay. But I believe that God speaks in dreams and visions, and I believe that it's in the Bible. And so God does move that way. Another thing is about angels. You've got to be careful about this stuff. You need to test them. But, you know, when an angel pierces through into the natural realm, you know, God could, have, God could send an angel that once it comes through into the natural realm, it could be, for example, an African-American woman that's preaching the gospel. That's the way it could look. It could be a Chinese man riding a bicycle. It could be a white homeless man with a beard under a bridge. Once they pierce through into the natural realm, God can kind of disguise them, so to speak. And that's why the Bible says that we entertain angels sometimes unaware. Because when they pierce through in the natural realm, God can disguise them where you don't recognize them. You know. So I'm just trying to round this thing out to where there's balance. My point is, as a pastor, I'm going to test everything, and it's going to be God. And if it's not God, I'm going to kick it out. And if some people get mad because they think it's God, I don't know what to tell them, but it's not going to be here. I mean, they'll just get over it or leave or whatever. But it's, I'm totally open to God moving in different, unique ways, but it's going to be God. Amen? Anybody else feel that way? Does anybody really want some counterfeit demon running around? Does anybody want some some counterfeit things, some fallen angel pretending to be of God? Of course not. So just rest in the fact and know that as a pastor, I don't just blindly accept everything. But when it's God, I want it. But I'm going to test it and make sure it is God. So let me give you some warnings, though, as we close this thing out. The greatest attack of all, I'm going to read these over real quick. Satan's major goal is to divide. How many people... And Satan has been able to get them offended with their leaders, to get them offended with a brother and sister. Petty stuff, stupid stuff, but yet it brings discord in the body. Man, that is the biggest attack of all. The next one is this. Watch out for adultery. David, remember, he lusted after Bathsheba. While revival's going on, I'm telling you, keep your passions under control. Keep your flesh under and make sure that your eyes are guarded and you're not allowing any type of lust in your heart. That was David's problem. When he should have been out at war, he was at home looking at a naked woman bathing, which is basically just like looking at pornography. While he should have been out fighting, He was basically looking at pornography, and then it led him into an adulterous affair and murder. The next thing is, during revival, watch out for idolatry and great deception. How in the world can the children of Israel be brought out like they were to pretty quickly fall into making this golden calf? And can you imagine how ugly and stupid that calf had to look when they all threw gold in there and Aaron not having a clue how to um, be some kind of artist takes and tries to make this makeshift ugly 
calf out of this gold. You know that thing was lopsided and the goofiest looking thing you've ever seen in your life. Ugly, and yet they're bowing down and worshiping that thing. How can that type of deception and idolatry creep in? You've got to be careful in revival that you don't allow deception or idolatry to creep in at all. Keep your focus on Jesus. Another thing is rebellion. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They, Korah said, I'm a Levite too. Why should this Moses be ruling over us? Who made him prince and ruler over us? Who does he think he is? And we all know how that ended. But let me tell you, God cannot bless rebellion. I remember hearing a preacher saying in revival that he told the people, you're going to pray with people this way. And there were people that didn't want to do it that way. They wanted to do it their way. And he said, God's not going to move in rebellion. He's not going to bless rebellion. And so he had to remove people from the altar ministry because they wouldn't submit to authority. You know the test of knowing if you're somebody that will submit to authority is when you want to do something and you're told no. How do you respond then? Because if somebody tells you no and you don't want to do it anyway, then you're just going to go along. But whenever you want to do something and somebody says no, then you know right then if you've got a rebellion issue. But rebellion is an attack of the devil during revival. Witchcraft control. This is the whole Jezebel thing. You've got to be careful with this. This is a serious attack. And let me tell you, if you and I've preached a lot on this, so I'm just going to read over it, but these, these forces that come against revival, this is not something to be taken lightly. This is serious. This is not just a person you're dealing with. It's a powerful spirit behind that person. I've, I've come up against a Jezebel spirit, and there may be some little woman that weighs 100 pounds, and they, there's nothing about her intimidating at all, believe me. And I'm not intimidated by her, but you can feel something that's so strong and so oppressive, you literally feel yourself quaking under the pressure of that spirit that's using her. And how many people are clueless to these things? But a Jezebel spirit will belittle male authority, try to manipulate, try to intimidate. Witchcraft prayers. Women not submitting, wives not submitting to their husbands. Church people refuse to submit to leadership. Listen, it brings severe attacks of depression, discouragement, and fear. Other moves of God have been hindered by not having order and tolerating the spirit. One, one great revival was Wales. Evan Roberts, man, the, one of the greatest men of God, one of the most incredible moves of God, yet Evan Roberts ends up with this witchy woman that brought him, remember that, brought him over to where she lived and began to kind of disciple or minister or mentor him or whatever, and he never got out of it again. It's like he came underneath something and he never re-emerged out of that presence that was there. It was a Jezebel spirit. Watch out for a religious spirit's opposition and resistance like legalism, criticizing, fault-finding, debating, man's control. That's what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit comes, a group of people fall out, laugh, shake, cry, fall, whatever, all this stuff happens. And then there's a religious critic. And then the religious critic will start whispering in the ear of people that are gullible. And the people that are gullible that really aren't very spiritual will start entertaining the thought in their mind, well, wait a second, maybe this isn't God. So watch out for the deception of a religious spirit. Watch out for evil men like Sanballat and Tobiah. Nehemiah was trying to build the wall. 
and do what God called him to do. The whole time, Sinbalat and Tobiah are mocking them, making fun of them, ridiculing them, sent rumors to the king, saying they're leading a rebellion, did everything they could to oppose them. Then after that, Nehemiah goes out of town. They finally got the victory. So Nehemiah maybe went on vacation, whatever he was doing. And some goofy priest led him into the temple and gave him in like a room. Tobiah. And when Nehemiah got back and was just whistling and walking along, doing whatever he was doing, and saw Tobiah come out of his little room that they gave him, he got, he got mad about it, picked him up and threw him out of the temple, gathered up all of his belongings, threw it out on the street, said, hit the road. And let me tell you, you've got to be careful of evil men and women that try to slip in. Not everybody is of God, and not everybody needs to be a part of what's going on. Okay? Also, be careful about betrayal. There was a man by the name of Gedaliah, and people tried to warn him. He was a ruler in Israel. People told him, there's an assassination attempt coming against you. He said, ah, I'll be fine. Next chapter, he was dead. You can't be passive about the warnings. God will send warnings. You've got to take warnings seriously. Amen? Be careful about man worship. Remember Gideon's ephod. Gideon had a great victory. Then after Gideon's great victory, the people wanted to make an ephod. And Gideon allowed him to do it, and they worshipped the ephod. And it was a snare, the Bible said to him and his family. Be careful about man worship. Just because God's using somebody mightily, don't get your eyes on them, keep your eyes on Jesus. One of the things during the Argentine revival, there were people that were not being healed, and they were asked about it because there were so many healings. And Carlos Anacondia said he believes his wife discerned the problem was that the people were looking too much at Carlos and not at Jesus. And so that's why you see people like Benny Hinn when they go preach, they tell people, Benny says, I can't heal you if I want to. Get your eyes off me. Get your eyes on Jesus. He's your healer. He's your source. As long as people are worshiping man, it's an idol, and God won't, won't bless that at all. Another thing is watch out for greed and the love of money. Like Gehazi. Gehazi was to Elisha what Elisha was to Elijah. So Gehazi could have inherited Elisha's anointing and possibly a double portion of that. Gehazi was the one that saw the chariots and saw all these great miracles. He was there with Elisha through all of it. Yet Naaman the leper comes. Elisha says, dip in the Jordan. He's healed. Naaman says, I want to give you money. And Elisha said, we don't want your money. Go home. Gehazi sneaks out the back door of the tent, goes running after um, Naaman and gets some of that money. He thought he hid it from Elisha. But he should have known that this was the same guy, remember, that heard things, the king's chamber. And so Gehazi comes back. He hid everything real good, but it was a love of money in him. And Elisha said, was I not with you when you took the belongings from Naaman? And he said, therefore, because you did this, the leprosy that was on Naaman will come on you. And you never hear about Gehazi from that point again. He was gone. He disqualified himself from the purposes of God. And Elisha, when Elisha died, his mantle went to the grave with him, and it never passed to another. That's why you read about them throwing that dead guy into Elisha's tomb, and the dead guy hit his bones and came back to life because that anointing was still there. Isn't that sad? 
Gehazi was the one that should have been walking in that anointing, but instead of walking in the power of God, he was walking around a leper. And it all went back to loving money and having an issue, an unresolved issue with money. Or another thing is this. Church scandals usually revolve around money or sex. So be careful with these things. We have things in place where people are not alone with the opposite sex and where the way money is counted and handled, there's so many checks and balances. Everything's there for a reason. is to protect people from accusation and slander. Some of the things that happened in revival history where people missed God, discipleship was not in place in times past. That's why great revivals did not fulfill everything God called them to do because they didn't have discipleship in place. That's why I'm working very hard to get everything ready with discipleship. Many revivals fell short because they neglected to honor those that's gone before us. The Bible says, honor your fathers and mothers. Because So we've taken time to go through history, and Brother Zach has done a great job of honoring the fathers and mothers of the faith. And we've been doing some sermons and things dedicated to that. Because revivals spread like an uncontrollable forest fire, there's a temptation to try to control them. But don't fall into this. If, when revival's breaking out here, and we've already had this happen, where people come here and get touched and they go somewhere else and a move of God starts happening there, don't try to control any of that. Just let God move and do what he wants to do. Amen? Another thing is, don't fall into lawlessness or legalism. In revival, people have fallen into the trap of letting things go that should not be you know, let go. There should be accountability. There should be sin dealt with. They let things go. But then you've got the whole other side, the whole other ditch, where you've got legalism and browbeating, and, it, and it's, it, it's a religious thing. You want to keep it down the center, where you don't tolerate sin, but you're also patient with people as God is cleaning them up and doing a work in them. That's what I loved about Brownsville so much, because people came straight off the streets and came into that revival and got saved. And they loved them, and they ministered to them. They didn't tolerate any sin. They preached against sin all the time. But they loved the people and helped the people get on the other side of their sin and get victory. And that's what God wants us to do, isn't it? Few men in history have been able to find the delicate balance between letting the Lord use them or using the Lord. Think about that. Evan Roberts was driven by the conviction to only let God have all the glory. William Seymour, though great in humility, was even more interested in keeping the hands of men off the revival. Just because of his hunger to see a move of God, both of these are needed. You've got to give God all the glory, but you also got to keep the hands of men off the move of God. Both are needed. 